Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped and camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now when all the people saw the thunders and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. Amen. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, It's good to see so many of you this morning. We continue this morning in a series that we've been uh, doing for a number of months now. And we'll continue to do probably throughout the rest of uh, the year. 2014, uh, on the narrative passages in the Old Testament scriptures, and we come, and we're actually doing a, a, taking a second week to look at this passage here in Exodus 19 and 20, which is the giving of the Ten Commandments to Israel, because it's an important passage. Now, last week I said, if you're a Christian, part of your story is an Exodus experience of one kind or another, what we might call conversion. And for me, it happened one night when I was nine years old, and my dad took me back into his office at our home and sat me down and explained the gospel to me and I invited Jesus into my heart and was baptized a few weeks later in our church. So something like that. But I also said that if you're a Christian, part of your story is a wilderness experience of some kind. And that refers to the hard times that you've had to go through that have matured you and strengthened your spiritual muscles and increased your faith. So what we see in this part of the story that we're looking at here in the Old Testament scriptures is that God takes every single person, not just this people, every single person who belongs to him through a similar process. Something similar to what Israel has experienced here in the book of Exodus. Out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and here to Mount Sinai. And so in everything God has done in your life, in your conversion story, in the process of sanctification he's taking you through... That we find ourselves here at the foot of Sinai means he's had one goal in all of that. And that goal, as we read in the catechism just a few minutes ago, was to make you a person for his mission in the world. That is, to make you the kind of person who can obey him. And that's what this passage is about. God gives Israel his law. 
And if you notice the language there, even as Susan was reading that, it's a frightful passage because God is quite frightening. Fear, or what the Bible refers to as the fear of the Lord, is an important part of obeying God. And so we want to take a look uh, specifically at that this morning. And if you look down at verse 21 in chapter 20, excuse me, verse 20 in chapter 20, this is really where we're going to focus our attention this morning. Write on this verse and kind of use this verse to talk about the whole passage and actually about the whole Bible from beginning to end and what it has to say about this theme. But Moses says to the people there, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now that seems to me to be a very important verse. First, because it plainly states God's goal, that you may not sin. We've said this, haven't we? This is, this is the goal, nothing less. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus says in Matthew 5. And C.S. Lewis said when Jesus said those words, he meant it. So the verse is very important. Secondly, because it also points to how you can get to the goal. Moses says it's when, these notice, it's when the fear of the Lord is before you, then you won't sin. We have some explaining to do, because there's a little bit of confusion, actually, if you look at this verse, isn't there? I mean, there's an irony here that I'd like to point out, because on the one hand, Moses says, don't, don't be afraid. But then immediately, as soon as he says, don't be afraid, he says, God's testing you so that you'll fear him. Okay. He does the same thing. In Isaiah chapter 8, which we read as a, a call to worship, the prophet says, don't be afraid, don't be in dread. But then he turns right back around, and in the next sentence he says, but fear the Lord. Let him be your dread. So which is it? What, what, what's going on here? What is the nuance uh, that, the, that the Scripture is trying to help us understand here about our fear? And I think if I was to formulate what we're going to say today into a doctrine, it would be something like this. It would be that there's a generic fear of God that will cause you to fear everything else except him. And then there's a genuine fear of God that will make it so that you fear nothing but him. So when God says... God's testing you so that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. He's talking about that second kind, the genuine fear of God that can make it so that you fear nothing else. That's the mark of a Christian. A Christian is a person who, because he rightly fears God, has stopped being afraid. A Christian is a person who, because he rightly fears God, has stopped being afraid. And that's what I want to talk about this morning in detail. So these three things, you'll see them in there in your outline. I want to first talk about the generic fear of God that will cause you to fear everything else except Him, which every person has. Every single person in the room, whether you're a Christian or not. Secondly, I want to talk about the genuine fear of God that will cause you to fear nothing but Him, which is the kind of fear only Christians live with. And then thirdly, how you can get... And live with the genuine fear of God. It's ultimately a gospel fear. So those are our three points. You see them there? The genuine fear. Excuse me. The generic fear. The genuine fear. And then ultimately the gospel fear. So let's just walk through the passage uh, using those headings. Okay. First, the generic fear. The fear that will make you afraid of everything. And that's the kind of fear that the Israelites are experiencing here at the foot of Mount Sinai. The kind of fear that every single person, regardless of who you are or where you come from, experiences to one degree or another. When the people encounter God in the Bible... Whether here or in other places, their response is always the same. Here in Exodus 19 and 20, do you notice they tremble? They're afraid. They stand far off, we're told. Okay, this, everywhere in the Bible, it's the same. In Isaiah chapter 6, which Jonathan has mentioned already today, in which we read not long ago in our community Bible reading program, the prophet Isaiah has a vision. 
And the place where he is, is filled, it begins to shake and it's filled with smoke. I mean, familiar language even, right? And Isaiah falls on his face because God has come into the building and he's terribly afraid. And this is what he says, woe to me for I'm lost. He has this encounter with God and his immediate reaction is this overwhelming sense of dread and fear. It's the same in the book of Job. The whole book there is all about, is about all of this speculation of this questioning of God. And then God shows up in the whirlwind to finally talk to the people who've been talking about him for all these chapters. And Job is undone. He says, basically says, okay, I'm going to stop talking now. And he hits the ground. And this is what he says. I, he says, I've heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you, and because I see you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Just one more example. In Luke's gospel, when Peter first encounters Jesus, he's been fishing all night long, caught nothing, and then he goes out fishing with Jesus, and all of a sudden there's more fish than the boat can handle, and he begins, it begins to dawn on him that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh, the Messiah, the Son of God, and this is his reaction. Uh, he, he doesn't hug Jesus. He doesn't sing a love song to him. He falls on his face and he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Now that's just three or four examples. There are many, many more. But in every case, what you see is there's fear. And if you look carefully at these stories in the Bible, you'll notice that there are two realities that are being brought together in these encounters that set off the fear. On the one hand, there is the revelation of God's holiness. Okay, God's holiness, which is a hard thing to describe. And in fact, that's probably the best description. God's holiness is his indescribability, which is why it is often represented in the scripture. Anytime you see this language, it refers to what, his holiness. It's represented by images and metaphors like thunder and lightning and bright light and earthquake. But the theologians have told us that, that God's holiness refers to it's a moral attribute of God. God's holiness is a moral attribute, as if to say, God does not have moral standards, he is the standard. And in these encounters, there was at the same time, what's happening is, in the face of God's holiness, there is a revelation to the people who are in these moments of encounter with him, of their moral character or of their sin in relationship to the standard of God's absolute and utter holiness and moral character. A.W. Tozer put it this way, he said, what's happening is the people in these stories are having an emotionally violent reaction because what's going on is they're finally beginning to see themselves as God sees them. Stained, guilty, broken, sinful, whatever word you want to use to describe it, the very opposite of the holiness of God that's being revealed, and that's why they shake and cry out in fear. Now, let me offer an illustration to explain this a little better. We, we know what causes earthquakes. At least we think we do. We know some of it, probably not all of it, but we know some of it. That beneath the surface of the earth, there are pieces of the earth's crust, right, that we call tectonic plates. And there are certain places where these plates, they meet, and from time to time, what happens is the plates move or shift, and they rub up against one another pushing on one another, and it's this pushing and this pressure that causes vibrations that are so violent that they literally shake the earth. Tectonic plates crash into one another, and it causes the earth to shake. And the glory, see, it's a very apt illustration. The glory and the holiness of God and my sin 
are like these tectonic plates. They are an existential reality that is buried beneath the surface of my life and your life. And when they begin to crash together, in other words, when the reality of my sin, or you know, when the reality of my sin and God's holiness begins to dawn on me, then what happens is the foundations of my emotional life begin to shake. And that's what's going on here. Now, there are punctuated experiences that create this kind of emotional, psychological, spiritual earthquake, like Sinai, like Isaiah, like Peter, and in our lives too. But what the Bible teaches is that in some sense, the pressure and the tension between the holiness of God and my guilt and my sin is there all the time. It's constant. And so Paul even says in Romans that even unbelievers know, though, they, though it's you know, sometimes on an unconscious level, even those who would, would claim to not even believe in God, they know that there's a law and that they've broken it and therefore they deserve to be punished. That's Romans one thirty two. They live with a guilty conscience. And I've, I've used the illustration before, but if you need an illustration from my life of just how real that sense of a guilty conscience is, how nervous do you get when you look up and a policeman's following you when you're driving in your car? I freak out every time. I think, did I run that red light back there? No, I didn't. Am I gotta be, no, I'm not speeding. I mean, it, it is immediate, like he's about to pull me over. And it's because I live, with the, I live with this inward reality that I am a lawbreaker. And you do too. Now, you're probably not as neurotic as I am. Few people are. But it's a great illustration of we all live with this sense of, of unease. God thunders his law from the mountain and the people tremble. They're afraid. And Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher in London in the mid-19th century, preached a sermon on this text. And he said that this, this picture, this, this story here in Exodus 19 and 20, this event, is a picture. The smoke and the fire and the trembling of the people. It's a picture of the way that the law works and deals with our consciences and our hearts. In other words, the trembling and the fear of God is, is God working on you? It's the law doing its work in your heart. It's the beginning steps, the beginning steps of God saving you. So when the law first begins to work on you, it creates fear. But the fear is there because it brings you into undeniable reality that you can't obey it. So the first work of the law is to create fear because you know you can't obey it. John Stott, the Anglican pastor, said it this way. He said, the purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he's really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. So the law's first work, and I like the way Tozer said it, he said, is to help you discover yourself under your disguises. To help you see yourself as God sees you. To cut through cut through all of the, the, the hiding and the deception and the posturing that we do to make God a terror to you and cause you to feel the threat of his holiness against the reality of your sinfulness. And the Puritans called this law work. And here it, it goes something like this. Here's the way the law begins to work in your life, okay? Uh, just one example of the way, you know, you, know, you might begin to feel, feel this sense of the tension that I'm describing uh, just take, just just sit for a minute and meditate on uh, the way you've used your words this past week. James says that the, that though the tongue is a small member, there is a world. I mean, it's an amazing metaphor. He says there's a world of evil in the tongue. So stop and think for a minute. Can we do this little exercise? How have you used your tongue this past week? 
Did you gossip about anybody? Did you boast on social media? What words did you withhold from people? What about sins of omission? How often could you have offered a kind word or an encouraging word, but you chose not to? Okay, then consider, when you get to the end of all of that, then consider this. What about all the things you thought but didn't say? In our discipleship curriculum, we ask people to do an experiment, and, and it causes, it is awesome to stand by and just watch people melt. I mean, it is meltdown. And here's the experiment. For one week, you're not allowed to do these three things. You're not allowed to criticize or gossip about anybody. Number two, you're not allowed to defend yourself. Number three, you're not allowed to boast for an entire week. Most people make it about 30 minutes. Maybe. We had a, we had a, we had, when I did it with my discipleship group, we just had A, B, C, or one, two, three, I can't remember what we did. And every time, every time you caught yourself doing one of those three things, you had to text the rest of the group, one, two, and it literally was, I'm glad we have free texting, because it literally was like one, two, and then guys would go, two, 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 one, two, three, <laughs> two for his last two, I mean, you know. I mean, it was awesome, because you, you, you can begin to track the way your heart, I mean, it, the heart, there's a world of evil in the heart, in the tongue. Uh, and what, what you're seeing is the law is beginning, what the law is doing there is beginning to dig into your life to help you see just how gross it is in there, or do this. This is my other favorite one, and I did some traveling this weekend, and you know, airports bring out the worst in people, they really do. Air, airline, uh, you know, air travel. Um, and I just thought, do nothing without arguing or complaining. Go. How long would it take that experiment to run its course before you realize, holy cow, I've got no shot of getting that right. So see, this is what the law does. The law comes in and it helps, it exposes our sin and helps us to begin to see uh, the real tension between the, the demand and the claim of God's holiness on our lives and the reality of our sins. It causes God to be a terror to us because we feel the threat of his holiness against the reality of our sinfulness. But if you stop there, see, if God is a terror to you, if you stop with the law, that's the first work of the law. That's the beginnings of the law work. But if you stop there and don't go on to where the law means to take you, then something begins to happen in your life. Then the, the fear of the Lord, this, this terror of the, the holy, will cause you not only to be afraid of, of him, but you'll be afraid of everything else as well. This is the generic fear that makes you afraid of everything. Calvin Calvin put it this way. He said that the boldest despisers of God are startled at the rustle of every fallen leaf. I love that statement. They're they're startled at the rustle of every fallen leaf because underneath even the atheism of the boldest opponents to Christianity, there is an existential dread, the guilty conscience that knows it is not right with its maker. And if you stop there and don't deal with that, then every time you're criticized, it'll shake the foundation of your life. Every time you, f- you fail, every time life starts to get hard, it'll set off an emotional, spiritual earthquake because you'll be wondering if you're being punished. If, if God is, a, is, is thunder and lightning and fire and smoke to you, you'll not only be afraid of him, you'll be afraid of everything else. And the problem is, is this is the kind of fear that will take you out. You'll close the door, you'll lock yourself in, you'll refuse every adventure, and the mission will go on and you won't be a part of it. So there's a generic fear of God that will cause you to be afraid of everything. But according to the Bible, and we've got to keep going in this passage, there is also a genuine fear of God that will cause you to be afraid of nothing. So the, first, the law first makes you afraid because you can't obey it. But if you, you use it rightly, 
this fear will actually transform into a fear over time as, as it takes you to the gospel that will cause you to obey. So you start being afraid because you can't obey, but then it creates a fear that actually leads you to obedience. So look at our verse again. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not, be, do not fear, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. This is where this passage in Hebrews becomes so important to us because they are the Hebrews writer in that Hebrews 12 passage that was in our assurance of pardon. He says that Christians don't come to Mount Sinai, they come to Mount Zion. And so the, the, the irony is, is that just like these Israelites, if, you're a, if your faith is in Jesus, you will have a, an Exodus-type experience and you'll have a wilderness-type experience, but eventually something's going to happen. You're, you, may, you may continue to go through the wilderness, but you're not going to continue to go to Mount Sinai. Something changes, and, and he says, you don't, you don't come. You've not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, Hebrews twelve eighteen, And he's describing a whole other approach to God. When he says you've not come, that word refers to the orientation that you live your life towards God, the way you approach him in worship and in your life. A Christian no longer comes to Sinai. That's the Hebrew writer's way of saying this, that something has changed, that our relationship with God is no longer based upon the law as it is revealed to be here in Exodus 19 and 20. To be a Christian means that you've come to see what John Calvin so eloquently said, that the purpose of the law from the very beginning Moses is giving the law here in Exodus 19 and 20. Calvin said, he, the law has come not to give righteousness, but in fact to take it away. And John Gerstner, I know I'm quoting a lot of people this morning, but it's because this is pretty heady theological stuff. He said, I think quite well, he said the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good deeds. See, that's the law's work. The law's work is to take away any hope you might have of secretly, har- you might be secretly harboring that you can be good enough to stand before God on your own merits. The law strips you of any hope of doing that. Do the tongue assignment. It'll do that. It takes away righteousness. It takes away, it strips you, it takes away the sense of righteousness that you may feel so that all that's left is grace. And when Hebrews says you've not come to Mount Sinai, you come to Mount Zion, he means that we're done with basing our relationship with God upon the law. And when you come to see that, the way you fear God begins to change. Listen to the, what the psalmist says. Jonathan stole my thunder and read this already, but I'll read it again. He says in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore... You are feared. And the fear the psalmist speaks of there in those verses is not the terror that the Israelites experienced at the foot of the mountain. It is a different kind of fear altogether. It is a joyful awe and wonder before the greatness of who God is and what he's done. So when Moses says here in verse 20, Fear not, God is testing you that you might fear him and that the fear of him might be before you. He's describing the change from God in his holiness and glory being a terror to you, to God in his mercy and compassion becoming a treasure to you. And to fear God means you make him the center of your life and you live astounded by his love. And so why use the word fear then? And, and I, you know, well, the only way I know to, to explain why the word fear carries over into this other experience is you know, something like this. Have you ever had a close call 
in a car. Let's be honest, you're texting on your phone when you shouldn't be. And then you look up, and there are brake lights in front of you. And you slam on the brakes. And you stop just short of the car in front of you. And you sit there for a minute, and what's happening? Your heart's pounding. You're out of breath. You're scared to death. And what's fascinating is, you're safe. You're safe. But you're still terrified at what almost was. There's still the, the shaking and the trembling. And literally, you know, literally your hands shake and your heart is racing. Because even though you're safe, all you can think of is how terrifying it would have been if you had run into the back of the car in front of you. You're terrified of, of what almost was. And the psalmist says... Lord, if you kept a record of sins, I'm done. I have no choice. I have no chance. But you forgive. And what's happening is he's had a close call, and he was shook up by the close call. And that's what it means to have the fear of God before you. You never quite shake the feeling of what almost was, and therefore you never stop being amazed at the mercy you've been shown. Does that make sense? You never quite shake the feeling of what almost was, and therefore... You never stop being amazed at the mercy that you've been shown. It's, it's, it's exactly what C.S. Lewis describes in the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy asks Mr. Beaver about Aslan. Is, is he a man? And Mr. Beaver sternly says, Aslan, a man? Certainly not, I tell you. He's the king of the, the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan says, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he, is, is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion, to which Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, if there's anyone who could appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. And of course, that sets off the famous line, then is he safe, said Lucy, to which Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. See, when you know that God is not safe, but that he's good, what Lewis is getting at, isn't it? When you know that he's not safe, but that he's good, then you'll fear him. But with a different kind of fear, it will be a joyful awe and wonder before the greatness of who he is in his glory and holiness, and also what he has done for you in his grace. And if you fear God like that, you won't be afraid of anything else. This is the fear that can make you not sin. Because you see, your greatest fear is the most important thing in your life, the thing you love the most, the thing you're most afraid of having to live without. Follow your fear. If you just take your fear and you follow it, it will lead you to your gods. But when God becomes your fear, he becomes the one thing you can't live without. And if he's all you need, if he's the source of your joy, your peace, your security, your identity, if his love and his loyalty to you are the one constant in your life, then you won't ever be afraid again. So lastly then, this is where we have to finish this morning, then how do you live with this genuine fear of God that will cause you to fear nothing but him? And the answer is the gospel. It's a gospel fear. You shouldn't be surprised by this by now. This is what we've been doing every week and we'll continue hopefully to do. But look back at this story in Exodus 19 and 20, down at the end of the chapter. Uh, and we read beginning in verse 18, that when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. What'd they do? What'd they do with their fear? They turned to Moses. And it's a faint picture 
But in their turning to Moses is a picture of faith because they came to understand something. In light of God's holiness and their sin, remember the clash, the crashing together of these two realities. In light of their holiness, excuse me, God's holiness and their sin, they realized in that moment that they needed a mediator. And Moses was their mediator, and in that way he points to Jesus. Let me explain. A mediator is a go-between. When two parties have a disagreement and need to be reconciled, they go to a mediator. And the mediator's job is to bring the two parties together. And so for Jesus to be your mediator means this, and then I'm done. I just want to say this and then explain it we're finished. For Jesus to be your mediator, and if you read Hebrews, it talks a lot about this. It means this. It means that God has to come through Jesus to get to you, but it means you have to come through Jesus to get to God. Now let me take one of those one at a time. First, you, it means you have to go through Jesus in order to get to God. God's holiness and our sinfulness are irreconcilable, absolute claims. There's no way for the two of them to be reconciled apart from a mediator. So Spurgeon says in that sermon I referenced, Be sensible of your sin. You will no more attempt to approach an, abs- an absolute deity than you would to walk into a volcano's mouth. See, God is a consuming fire, and if you try to come to him on your own merits, he will swallow you up. You will be consumed. You need a mediator because the mediator's work is to bring the two parties in a disagreement together, and that's exactly what Jesus has done. Listen, at the end of his life, Jesus Christ climbed a mountain like this mountain in Exodus 20, and he hung there on the cross. And as he was there, the darkness and the dread came down, and with his dying breath, the earth shook because he hung there bearing the curse of the law and God and his holiness and wrath came down to judge him, but him instead of us. And just like Moses in verse 21, Jesus went into the thick darkness where God was, and he was consumed. And to put your faith in him means that you understand that even your good works condemn you. And instead, you trust him to be your mediator. You trust that God deals with him as if he were you. Did you hear that? God deals with him as if he were you. God has charged him with your sin and rebellion, and he has suffered the penalty of death that God's holiness demands of you. But to trust Jesus as your mediator also means you can trust that because God has dealt with Jesus as if he were you, listen, now you can deal with God as if you were him. Isn't that amazing? If you're in Christ then you have the same rights and privileges and access to God that Jesus does. You have the same standing with the Father that he does. When you pray in his name, the Father hears those prayers as if they were uttered by the Son himself. That's that's amazing. God deals with us as if we were him. And we can deal with God as if we were him. So the hymn by John Newton put it this way, He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us in his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. And Jesus has hushed the law's loud thunder. What does that mean? It means you don't have to live afraid anymore. Paul says in Romans 8, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Good news? Then down in the end of the passage, he says, Nothing can separate us from God's love. Good news? And see, everything in between those two statements in Romans 8 is all about how to live not afraid. Go, to, go read Romans 8 this afternoon. We can face the reality of a broken world full of heartache and sadness and not fall apart and be overwhelmed. We can navigate broken relationships that cause deep pain but still find the courage and the energy to love. We can say yes to whatever adventure the Lord would invite us on. Not being afraid of 
how tragic the end might be. We can endure tribulation and distress and persecution and conflict. And as Paul puts it, in all these things, be more than conquerors, not just conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us because we know that nothing can separate us from his love. And therefore, if nothing can separate us from his love, if God is for us, finish it. Who can be against us? So the psalmist sings, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? See, that's the heart. That's the heart that has stared down the greatest threat. And seen God work to satisfy the demands of his justice and is left with nothing else to fear. And that's the hope and the promise of this, of this verse, of this passage. The Lord is light in my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Oh, that he would make that our confession as well. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we confess to you that we are a people much afraid, that we, and many times, we tremble and shake at the rustle of every leaf because our consciences have not been cleansed by the water of your grace, by the blood of the Lord Jesus. We are only still at the beginnings of the law's work, and so we are terrified and feel condemned and struggle with feelings of self-hatred and self-loathing, and we and it's because we are still, we still, even to this point, are, are still basing our relationship with you upon the law. We've not heeded the law's commands to, to turn to the gospel. And, and so we're filled with dread, and not only dread in you, but it makes us afraid of everything else. So would you please come, Lord Jesus, speak the truth of your gospel to our hearts, that we might uh, no longer come, even as we sing these songs, that we would not sing them coming to Mount Sinai, we would sing them coming to Mount Zion where the law is put to an end and there is only grace because, Lord Jesus, you have lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. You have satisfied the demands of God's justice both in your death for our sins and in the life of obedience that you produced. And so when we come to you, when we come to the law, it takes away righteousness. It doesn't give it, but when we come to you by faith, you who were made sin for us so that we might become, so that we might have, we might become the righteousness of God in you. That's the, very, that's the very truth that hushes the law's loud thunder. And so, would you uh, drill that home to our hearts so that we can heed you when you command us over and over and over again in the Scripture, fear not. Undo our fear. Replace it with joy and confidence and peace so that we might be people full of good works that will glorify and honor you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, receive the benediction. May it fill your heart with wonder and awe uh, that the God of holiness and glory would so work that he might be able to, uh, to forgive and to heal and to have compassion. That's what the psalmist says. With you there's forgiveness, therefore you are feared. And the promise of this benediction is that despite your sin, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, uh, that God promises to be with you, his heart is turned towards you, uh, and that, that's an amazing thing. And so, receive the benediction with awe. Let it fill your heart with the fear of the Lord uh, that you might not sin. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.